Sound Design. So gating doesn't work, and I, I did about six years of development figuring out, first of all, a better gating system, and then beyond that, kind of discovered uh, the magical system called gain sharing. Sound Design. Sound Design Live is produced independently by me, Nathan Lively, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Welcome to Sound Design Live, the home of the world's only online training and sound system tuning for live sound engineers guaranteed to improve your confidence and consistency. I'm Nathan Lively, and today I'm joined by the inventor of the automatic mixer and CEO at Dan Dugan Sound Design, Dan Dugan. Welcome to Sound Design Live, Dan Dugan. Good morning. <laughs> so Dan, I definitely want to talk to you about sound design, the auto mixer, um, and field recording. But first of all, what is your favorite musical theater soundtrack recording? Well, let's see. When I was, uh, when I was a boy in the 50s, uh, my mother had, I think it was probably the movie soundtrack uh, LP of South Pacific. If you try, you'll find me where the sky meets the sea. Am I your special island? Come to me, come to me. And then when I was in college, uh, in the early 60s, the Fantastics came out. Try to remember the kind of September when life was slow and oh so mellow. And a bunch of us were just just in love with that. And we, we wanted to do it, but I guess the rights were too expensive or something, so our college theater group didn't do it. But uh, we all listened to it a lot. And then uh, later in my career, I'd say uh, the uh, New York original cast of uh, Hair. Give me head with hair, long beautiful hair, shining, gleaming, steaming, flaxen, waxen. I read about you actually working on Hair. And where was that? Was that at ACT? Well, ACT rented their theater to uh, the resident company of, uh, you know, they did regional resident companies. Uh, the mm-hmm. first one was was uh, Los Angeles. Uh, you know, it was running in New York and mm-hmm. for years, and uh, so then they founded a resident company in Los Angeles, and they weren't very happy with the sound. It was going to be produced in San Francisco. I made a bid to run the sound for it, but of course it was going to be a union show, and I wasn't union. Okay. <laughs> um, but I impressed the uh, company management enough that they hired me as a sound designer to do the next three productions, uh, which were Chicago, uh, Las Vegas, and Toronto. And this was uncommon, right? It, it was not common for someone to just be responsible for the sound design for multiple shows, right? Um, normally, it would yeah. just be the sound engineer who was also the sound designer or, or maybe the director or something like that. Yeah, that's right. Sound design was a, a new craft at that time. This is '68, actually, which was, which was the year that the term sound design was uh, was established in theater. I think the story is that it's also on the show where you maybe first got the idea for the automatic microphone mixer because you were just sort of um, you wanted better results, if I could say it that way. You wanted 
you wanted the operator to um, not be so limited by, you know, the the ten fingers that they had on their hands. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, at the time, uh, you could not buy a mixing console. Okay. Um, <laughs> That's also a problem. <laughs> yeah, mixing consoles were custom built by the chief engineer of radio studios and TV studios and recording studios, and so. Uh, to, you know, to do a show, there wasn't any budget to custom build a console. It was done on a rack of rotary knob mixers. You know, so there was no facilities whatsoever. I mean, just a volume knob for each, uh, you know, for each microphone. And there were, I think, something like 16 area mics uh, trying to pick up the chorus. You know, footlight mics and hanging mics uh, on three pipes. There were 10 mics in the band. Uh, and there were nine hand microphones um, and one wireless mic. So uh, all that was uh, was really difficult to, for the operator to handle. I did make a, a switchboard uh, using big telephone lever switches uh, for the eight hand mics that could mm-hmm. you know they could be cued on and off. And uh, each mic was covered with uh, colored mystic tape. So there was the red mic, the blue mic, the yellow mic, and so on. And the switches were color-coded because they really couldn't guarantee who was going to have which mic at what, you know, at what song. There were a couple of guys on the, on the floor who mainly were disentangling the cables of the mics that weren't being used. Even mute buttons you had to custom install for the operator to have those available. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, I kept thinking that there must be some way that you can turn on a mic when it's needed and uh, turn it off when it's not needed, you know. So that was yeah. that was the gen- that was how it all started. Um, Dan, taking um, maybe a step back, I'm curious how you got your very first job in audio. Like, what was the first job that you were paid for? Well, I, I'm not exactly sure, but I think it was uh, the old Globe Theater, the uh, Shakespeare Festival in San Diego, okay, in the summer of 1964. That was the first time that I was uh, hired there at, to be the sound technician, which really meant sound designer. Right, because you were responsible for everything, the entire aural environment, right? You were a one-man team, I bet. Yeah, um, they had a composer who would, you know, they were doing three plays, and there was a composer who would write scores for them, and then and I would record the scores, uh, either using the theater stage for our recording or a, a nearby church. Put the whole thing together on tape. It's probably a lot, but if you could take a second and sort of look back on everything you've done so far and seeing the decisions you've made to, um, I guess, get some of your very favorite projects and favorite jobs, um, what do you think is one of the best decisions you made to get more of the work that you really love? Um, specializing. You know, my career is basically creative opportunism. Mm-hmm. You know, I would do anything to do with lighting and sound. Uh, and then in about, well, about 68, I changed to sound and, and occasionally did lighting after that. But I started out as lighting designer, mm-hmm. uh, but I also did sound. And then I changed to sound full time in 68. But I would do anything. You know, I, d- I did uh, recording for records. I did some nice LPs. Uh, I did music festivals. I did sound for jazz concerts here in the Bay Area and, and folk concerts. And uh, I did some installation work. Um, I would do anything that I could get paid for. 
Sure. And uh, gradually over the years, I started shedding, uh, you know, the things which, which weren't really my core operations. Um, and when I moved to my present laboratory in 1983, I decided to specialize in only four things. <laughs> and then over the years since then, I've gradually trimmed it down more. And about three years ago, I closed my Nagra shop, which was actually my main financial income. Oh, wow. Repairing Nagras for about uh, 20 years. Uh, I was the Northern California uh, service shop for Nagras, and uh, I saw about 550 machines during that time. And, and there were about, in San Francisco, there were about 20 that were working full time uh, TV news, motion picture production, uh, commercial mm -hmm. production, things like that. You know, those, those 20 people were people who were using Nagras every day, so they would have to bring their machines in about twice a year for maintenance. It actually came out of theater because when I went to ACT in 67, of course, the sound designer's tool is the tape recorder. You know, we would send uh, the recorder to a shop to have it tuned up, and it would come back and just not really be good enough. I bought the manuals for the machines we had, built Heathkit instruments, uh, an oscillator, uh, you know, VTVM and, and uh, distortion analyzer, and built my own instruments and started servicing my own tape recorders because, I mean, it's like... You know, if you use tools, you have to be able to sharpen them. Mm -hmm. And so I became an expert in uh, getting top performance out of tape recorders. And then that became a sideline for the next 30 years of something that I did for people. Just so I'm clear, so by specialization, it sounds like you mean just being more clear about who you were and about the things you were really good at and about the things you really enjoyed doing and just saying yes to more of those things and no to more of the things that weren't really your specialty. Yeah, ex exactly. And now I've really trimmed down to one thing, and that's the automatic mixer stuff, right. which keeps me really busy all the time. And I'm, I'm still maintaining uh, the nature recording projects, which, uh, which I have some long-term research projects where I go back to sites every year. Okay. And I'm maintaining those, which I really love to do. But it's mainly just automatic mixers all the time now. So your main focus now is the Dan Dugan Auto Mixer. So let's talk about that a little bit. Um, I feel like everybody knows what it is already, but for maybe the peop some people who are listening who haven't had, their, haven't had a chance to work with it yet, could you just describe maybe the main use case for the Dan Dugan Auto Mixer? Um, well, it's used for wherever you have a bunch of people talking. Uh, even with two people, it's useful. And when you get up to, you know, having six or seven or eight people, it becomes essential. And, and when you have, you know, 20 or 30 people, it becomes magic. It's a way of handling microphones when a bunch of people are talking by turning up the microphone where the person's talking and turning the other microphones down. Now, you would think that, well, a gate would be what you would use for that. But it turns out that gates don't work very well for that. First of all, the softer things that you want to pick up from a talker sometimes can be softer than noises which occur at other times in the room. And so if you have thresholds set that are sensitive enough to pick up everybody when they lean back or speak softly, then when the audience applauds or the band plays or something, then all the microphones would come on. So 
that's the number one problem with gating is the threshold. And then uh, another problem is that it sounds terrible. You know, you, <laughs> yeah. you, you, hear, you hear the background, uh, the ambient noise go off and on, and that's no good. So gating doesn't work, and I, I did about six years of development figuring out, first of all, a better gating system, and then beyond that, kind of discovered uh, the magical system called gain sharing. That just solved the problem in such a wonderful way that I've been surfing on that ever since. So obviously the auto mixer is identifying who's talking and it's turning down the other channels, uh, the other microphones of the people who are not talking when that person is talking. But then when no one is talking and you mentioned the audience is applauding, there's a break, something like that, and all the mics are open, they don't just all open 100%. They all open to a medium gain um, that's equal to one channel being open, which I thought was really smart and I didn't understand before, but that's one of the reasons why when you have um, 20 channels open or 20 microphones, as you mentioned earlier, it does really feel like magic. Yeah, it sounds like handing a microphone around and... Uh, there's always the gain of one microphone. If you know, if two people are talking, each one of them has half the gain, and and so on. So uh, it's always the gain of one mic, and just gets distributed differently. You know, normally there's there's one person talking, and they've got all the gain there, and the only mic in the system. Could you share with us what are some of the biggest mistakes you see people making who are new to using the automatic microphone mixer? Uh, well, often people will have the idea in mind that it's a gate. They'll be very confused by the way it's operating because, you know, it's not a gate. You know, when nobody's talking, they see all this gain coming up, mm -hmm. and they can try to adjust it so it works like a gate. And it's actually possible with the weight controls to make it act like a gate, but then you have a, a very expensive gate, you know. <laughs> yeah. Another thing people expect is, is that it to be an automatic level control or a limiter or compressor of some kind. And uh, I don't really do anything with the, uh, the level of the signal. You know, I just bring mics up to level and down to, from level, uh, but I don't adjust the level. Uh, mm -hmm. And so, you know, if you, if you need compression, you'd use compression in the, uh, in the console. I, I don't do any EQ. If you need EQ, you've got EQ in the console, you know. Um, so uh, I don't do any of those other things. I just do one function in a very slick way. And uh, people have, have a hard time getting their heads around that if they have preconceived notions and don't read. I, I had to kind of look at the manual. So let's say that I've used the Dan Dugan automatic mixer once every three or four months. So I would always refresh myself in the manual before I would use it just to make sure I was using it correctly. And I always, always have to double check this line. Post fader. Are you sure, manual? Post fader? Yes, you insert it post fader. Are you sure? So... I would see other people make that mistake, so I think that's a common one as well. Well, yes, but you know, for for many years when we were using analog consoles, uh, the automatic mixer was patched pre-fader. Oh, okay. That was the only that was the only insert point there was, and it works fine pre-fader. Sure. Uh, only you have to change the operation style a little bit. Uh, you know, if you've got the automatic mixer pre-fader, you have to leave the faders up and mute on the Dugan. So when somebody goes off stage or whatever, you'd use the mute button on the on the Dugan channels uh, and just leave the faders up. Once post-fader inserts became available on digital consoles, then it became much more ergonomic. Because if you patch it post-fader, then you can work intuitively, you know, and if there's somebody making a noise, you can pull their fader down. And that takes it both out of the automatic mixer uh, and out of the mix. It might be helpful if we just went through quickly 
how this can be integrated into people's mix systems. So I know that there are several Yamaha mixers, for example, that just have it built in as an option now. Um, you can get it for Waves as a plug-in, and obviously there are hardware units that then you can insert in whatever way fits your system. What other ways can you implement the Dan Dugan Auto Mixer into your mix system? Well, my hardware units are all what I call retrofits. You know, they're ways of taking an existing console and putting automatic mixing into it. Uh, there's so many of them because there's different ways of connecting the insert points, you know. So I make I make a, an unbalanced analog for simple little mixers like Mackie's. I make a balanced analog, which should be for broadcast studios that have balanced insert points on a patch base, eh? I make AES Digital, uh, ADAT Digital, MADI, and Dante uh, versions. So those are all boxes, you know, my black box series, <laughs> which is... Uh, to retrofit automatic mixing into existing consoles. Mm -hmm. And then there's there's my licensing, which is manufacturers who, you know, build the algorithm into their firmware, uh, which is like now all the all the Yamaha Live Sound mixers have it to some degree. Mm -hmm. And they're installed they're installed sound mixers also. Sound devices uh, in their field recorder. Uh, and a company called Protech Audio makes very economical, simple mixers. Uh, for installed sound. Okay. Um, so those are my licensees, and I, I'm working on more licensees for the future. Tell me about your... I'm curious about your field recording, so I thought we'd get into that by just talking about the equipment you use. What is the hardware you take out with you? What is your field recording rig? Uh, well, I do uh, soundscape recording. You know, in, in nature recording, there's basically two things that people do. One is species hunting, where you're, you know, you're trying to capture a species and separate that species from the environment for, you know, for study or, you know, to make spectrograms and study the song of the bird or something like that. Um, or to make identification uh, CDs. And then the other style is soundscape recording, where you're trying to capture the whole soundscape and, uh, you know, whatever happens in it. I have equipment for both, but I, I do soundscape recording, uh, and I do it in the, in the national parks uh, as a volunteer for the park service uh, so I can get a, a, a research permit and uh, work in places where you ordinarily wouldn't be allowed to camp, which is a, a great privilege. Oh, I see, because you would need to be there at night in times when the park is normally closed. Well, a lot of times I would be stumbling in at 4 o'clock in the morning in the dark, you know, okay. trying, to find the trying to find the location that I had, uh, had marked out the day before. And, uh, of course, everything looks different, <laughs> you know, in the dark. Mm -hmm. And so I'd often often get lost but uh, I found out about research permits and it's much better to just set up and be on the site and then I'd be in my sleeping bag you know and at 4.30 in the morning when uh, nautical twilight happens and the birds are about to sing I can just roll over and turn on the recorder about the equipment I have two systems uh, I have a light system and a heavy system uh, the heavy system is pretty recognizable standard professional recording equipment. The, the current embodiment of it is, uh, it's basically a four-channel, uh, you know, quad system or 
surround sound with, without the uh, without the center channel. Okay. And I use uh, Sennheiser MKH 4020s, which is their uh, their new series uh, Omni mics, okay. uh, which are very good, and they and and they also uh, go up to uh, to 50k. Oh wow! Which is uh, which is interesting. In recent years, I guess about three years ago, I started to record at 96k. Originally, I have many many years a big archive of 441k recordings because. I had uh, assumed that I was going to be putting it out on CDs. There isn't really much market for for nature recordings, but I do have a few. Uh, I went up to 96K because I could, uh, and there is a nature sound up there. You know, there's bats and insects that are up there in the top octave that you can't hear. And so for scientific, for scientific purposes, sure. um, it's worthwhile to record at 96K. And the other side of it is uh, marketing bits. Um, you know, if anyone was ever going to buy surround recordings of nature, uh, it would be audiophiles. And so, uh, you know, they want, uh-huh. yeah, they want higher they bit love rates. That stuff. <laughs> and so, uh, uh, that's why I do it at 96k now. And anyway, and so I use a, a sound device's uh, 788T uh, timecode recorder. And you know, for many years I didn't use the timecode because I, I didn't see any need for it. Then I realized. Well, you're you're doing scientific recording. You can have real time time code and uh, have a time code track uh, on the recording so that it's uh, you know it's documenting exactly when it happened. And so I, I always use time code too. The heavy system packs into a, a low pro photographer's pack, and with you know with batteries with big uh, uh, NP1 uh, camcorder batteries. Um, the whole system weighs about 50 pounds, so and that's you know not including a sleeping bag or oh, anything. Wow. So I don't hike with that anywhere. That the heavy system is for, you know, when I can park within a few hundred yards of, of the recording location, and then and then I have a light system, okay, which weighs seven pounds, and uh, that consists of uh, four little lavalier mics uh, by the Swedish company Talinga. And uh, these are, you know, PIP, plug-in power type mics, and uh, a set of miniature cables that goes with those with miniature connectors. And because, uh, you know, I record from like 100 feet off from the microphones is where I record. And, okay. and in a quiet place, that's, that's still way not far enough oh, because, okay. you know, if in a really quiet forest, if, if I turn over in, in my sleeping bag, you know, you hear shh. I'll set up a stereo pair in the front for imaging and then uh, wide extended left and right channels for the rear channels, which is the same pattern for the heavy system and the light system. Okay. But uh, the light system then goes into a modified uh, Zoom H2 recorder, which is that little handheld four-channel recorder. Uh, it's, it's pretty old now. and mm-hmm. But mine's been modified so that it's got... Uh, took out the internal microphones and put two three and a half millimeter jacks on it. Uh, so there's a front a front pair and a rear pair. Oh, cool! And so that's uh, how the light system is put together. I guess the the other thing I was curious about is since you've been, I'm assumed, to many locations, what has been your your favorite location to record and 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 why? Because I'm also curious if you're out there like. 
really enjoying the recording process or is it when you get back into the studio and you're listening to it and you're like, this is an amazing soundscape? Well, I really enjoy it while I'm doing it and I, I make notes and, uh, you know, I'm just spacing out on it and listening to it on headphones and, <laughs> and it's often cosmic. The best places are places with a quiet ambience, you know, because it's like the black velvet background, you know, uh, you can hear into the distance and uh, that just makes all the difference in the world. Of course, it's, it's hard to find quiet places. Sure. Where can you get away from cities anymore? Well, basically, you have to be over a ridge from any traffic. Those places which are quiet, I really, I really treasure. My, my favorite is, uh, which I do an annual project in, is uh, Upper Mariposa Grove in uh, Yosemite. That's a sequoia grove. Okay. And uh, most places in the Sierras, you know, the Sierras is very much sawtooth up and down. And in the spring, in the, the bottom of every sawtooth, there's a stream uh, making a lot of white noise. Uh, that, of course, masks. But in Mariposa Grove, it's a, a kind of a wet, there's a wet meadow there where the water just oozes through, and there's no sound of water. And so I can hear, I can hear way into the distance. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, just, it's just beautiful. Oh, wow. What's been a book that's been really, really immensely helpful for you? I can't remember the name properly, but there was uh, Don Davis put out a book. I think it was called Sound System Engineering, okay. possibly. And, uh, you know, that's mm-hmm. the uh, Don Davis who started the uh, SynodCon training seminars. That was really kind of the first uh, available book that wasn't academic, that dealt with the, uh, the practical putting together of sound systems, but with engineering, you know, with figures also. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, before that, I think we were all kind of poking around in the dark and, and not making many measurements or anything. And that sort of brought the world of acoustic measurements down from, you know, the high academic Acoustical Society of America uh, latitude uh, down to ordinary people putting in sound systems in churches and auditoriums and things like that. So... That was a very influential book. And that book's still around. I've got the yes. fourth edition right in front of me. Dan, do you listen to any podcasts? Well, there's only one that I listen to, uh, and that's uh, Lang Elliott's uh, uh, Nature Sound podcast. And I, I can't remember the name of it here. Let me see. Uh, oh, Listening Earth uh, is his, his website. And uh, he's just started doing some podcasts in the last year. And uh, he just has a, a wonderful way of going to a place and, uh, and talking about it and explaining it. You're hearing the sounds, and, you know, when he edits it together, it's just a warm, it's, you know, it's like going to a favorite place with a friend, and he's, he's pointing out the different sounds. And it's uh, highly recommend uh, Listening Earth. So, Dan, I've got a couple of questions um, that Facebook friends wrote in to me. I want to go through them, but I don't necessarily expect that you'll have answers to all of them. So we'll just give it a shot and see what happens. Sure. So Bashir wrote in and said, uh, I, he has a couple of questions. He said, 
I have heard of people saying that it's applied to music. Why and how? So I, I assume he's talking about the automatic mixer, and maybe he has heard of people using the automatic mixer、um, on other things besides spoken voice. Do you know anything about this? Yeah, I actually have a different algorithm called the,、uh, not surprising, the Dugan Music System. Which is very little used, though it is in a lot of my products, and that is actually designed for dealing with、uh, multiple instruments and singers. Probably what Bashir is talking about is using this, what is called the Dugan Speech System, which is gain sharing. We've heard from friends in Japan that some people have used it. I don't recommend it because it basically uses level differences to determine gain differences. So in singing, if one person is singing louder than another, the louder singer would turn down the softer singer, which is the opposite of what you want、mm-hmm. to do for music. You know, the, the speech system is designed to separate microphones, not to blend them together. Uh, I can see it be be used as a special effect on on a set of drums, perhaps you know where when you hit one drum it would cut off the ring of the other drum.、Uh, could be an interesting、okay. tightening up effect, a special effect,、um, and it certainly works where one singer uses multiple microphones, or say one、okay. one player like a specialty percussion player、uh, plays different instruments. That have different microphones on them, but he's only playing one at a time.、Uh, I know、uh, a tour of the Killers used、uh, speech automatic mixing on just two microphones. The、uh, the lead singer had、uh, two mics in different positions on the stage, and、uh, the operator found that just having the automatic mixer on those two mics. Kept it at the gain of one mic, and when he was on one, he was singing on that one, and he was on the other, he was singing on that one. You know, so、uh, that worked very well. Nice. But what I hear from Japan is they have these shows that they call idols, where they have a whole bunch of、uh, of wannabe pop singers who apparently、okay. are trading lines <laughs> back and forth. I've never seen one of these shows, so I don't know what they do. But apparently,、uh, some people have used the built-in automatic mixer in the in the Yamaha boards. For that, and、uh, I have no idea. Interesting. <laughs> Bashir has another question. He says, "Speaking technically, would like an explanation of how it works, not how it's applied, but of how it works technically, like what it's really doing to the sound that I am applying it to." So again, I think he's talking about the automatic mixer,、yeah. and he wants to know, I guess, some of the the science behind it. If if I don't know what you can share about. Yeah.、That. Well, it's it's all public domain.、Uh, my patents have expired, so there's I can share anything. Well, the most important thing to understand is that it doesn't do anything except turn mics up and on, up and down. There's no equalization. There's no deconstructing the sound into little elements and putting it back together again. You know, like noise reduction processing or anything like that. It's absolutely just a volume control,、uh, which has a has a, a limit at the top, which is unity gain. You know, when someone's talking,、uh, it comes up to unity gain and stays there. Nothing is done to the sound of each individual mic. You know, so there's no limit to the quality of it, and what it does is, of course, something over a group of microphones. It takes the pattern of levels and turns the pattern of levels into a pattern of gains, normalized to the sum of those gains equals one all the time.、Uh, Lou asked, "Ask Mr. Dugan about non-Dugan branded auto mixers. I'm sure he isn't happy about them, but does he feel Dugan branded stuff?" Is better. <laughs> well, that's a loaded question. <laughs> you know, since the patents have expired,、uh, I have、uh, there's a whole field of what I call my honorable imitators:、mm-hmm. um, solid-state logic,、uh, Lawo, 
Calrec, Studer, Soundcraft, Allen & Heath, uh, these are all major console manufacturers who have implemented uh, gain sharing in some way or another. I don't test these because, you know, there's so many of them and new models are always coming out and I would go crazy just trying to test them. All I say is there are variations on the theme and uh, the way I do it is strictly standardized. Mm -hmm. So uh, when you license the Dugan system, or you know when you're using it, you know exactly what it's going to do. Uh, it doesn't have any adjustable parameters except for a channel weight, and uh, it's very predictable. A lot of people say it sounds better. I don't, I don't even say that. You know, maybe some of these manufacturers have actually improved on it. I don't know. Okay, Dan, where is the best place for people to follow your work online? Uh, on Facebook. I'm on there all the time putting on stuff, and I have a, quite a fan club there. Oh, cool. <laughs> uh, people are putting up pictures, you know, pictures of their Dugans on the job. Well, Dan, thank you so much for joining me on Sound Design Live. Uh, you're welcome. It's been fun. Sound Design Live. I want to thank Dan Dugan for the great field recording in today's episode. If you want to find the show notes for this episode, you can do that over at sounddesignlive.com. Just scroll to the bottom of any page and search for Dan Dugan. I also want to thank Dave, DC SoundUp, Sinqui, Ellis, Megan, Carlinius, and Bob for supporting Sound Design Live. If you'd like to support Sound Design Live, you can do that over at patreon.com slash sounddesignlive.